Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let us turn now to the president's trip, and we are thrilled to speak today to Ian Bremmer of Eurasia Group. It is G Zero Media, but far more is the effect of his many books upon our thinking of international relations, and that includes the phrase a G Zero world. Dr. Bremmer, President Biden will travel to not the G8 ex Russia, the G7 meetings. How G Zero is this G7 meeting? Well, it's less G0 than last year since the G7 didn't even meet uh, in the year of the pandemic. Uh, it, it clearly is a little more aligned. We've got a few pieces of news that matter. The Europeans and the Americans coordinating pretty effectively in the response to the downing of the Ryanair plane to Minsk, the diversion a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so everyone pretty irritated at Belarus right now. Secondly, you've got the Biden administration announcing coordination of this global minimum tax. It will take years if it ever gets done to get the U.S. Senate and individual right. European parliaments to ratify it. But still, it's a meaningful move towards coordination among the G7 that sets up the OECD in that direction. So it's not like nothing is getting done. But on really big issues out there, like on coronavirus response, like on climate change, we are very, very far from meaningful global coordination. And even on China, where the U.S., of course, sees Beijing as its principal adversary through a national security lens, the Europeans largely do not. And, and, and this is perhaps the most principal issue that really divides the G7. In a, in a Cold War era, the right. G7 is all rowing in the same direction because everyone sees the Soviets as their principal adversary. Today, that is no longer the case at all, and it makes life a lot more difficult. Well, you see, Ian, you see the, the polarity of Europe. Mr. Orban of Hungary coming out and saying the global minimum corporate tax plan is, quote, absurd. OK, that's one view from Eastern Europe. What captured my attention was the Merkel victory in domestic elections in Germany over the weekend. And to borrow from Mr. Trump and the Queen, does the president let uh, Chancellor Merkel walk in front of him? I, I mean, the the, the body language that we're going to see at this summit has to tilt to the chancellor of Germany in her esteemed career in a recent political victory. Well, since it's her last G7, sure, I'd let her do that. And, and since the relationship between Biden and Merkel has always been friendly, uh, I've seen Biden now attend in person Munich security conferences for 15 years. There's always been a good relationship with Merkel and, and the top of the German government. The Biden administration is staffed. Its cabinet are largely Atlanticists who like these people. The European allies, Orban is the singular major exception, are much happier with Biden than they were with Trump. But that doesn't mean they trust the Americans. That doesn't mean they're as aligned with the Americans. And they also are mm. very aware of just how uh, unstable and politically divided Biden's own leadership for the future is. Uh, and so the willingness of the Europeans to suddenly count on a United States that they are somewhat less aligned with 
and they also don't necessarily trust the long-term nature of its commitment, that the U.S.-EU relationship is nowhere close to where Biden would like it to be. And this idea that ever? America's back, Tom, I mean, when, when Biden said America's back, in terms of power, America never went anywhere. Not our dollar, not our tech companies, not our energy production. In terms of the influence we have with allies around the world, America has been deteriorating for a long time, and it's not changing very much right now. Can it ever get back, Ian? You know, I split my adult life between Germany and the U.S. And when I first came here in the 90s, in the in the early aughts, I was welcomed with open arms. They were so excited to have an American in their midst who actually spoke the language. There was a real brotherhood between the two countries after the healing of, uh, uh, from World War II. And, and then with the first um, uh, or the second uh, move into Iraq um, under Bush too, um, the, the relationship disintegrated a little and was absolutely destroyed by President Trump. Can we ever get back together? It wasn't destroyed by Trump. It was deteriorating under Bush, under Obama, and under Trump. And that deterioration accelerated over time. But I think it has less to do with the individual presidents. It has more to do with the fact that the United States no longer leads by example in the eyes of Europeans. Our democracy is by far the most divided and dysfunctional. January 6th was an absolute shock to the Europeans, more so than it was in the United States. We kind of got through it. We're soft, you know? I mean, we, do, we don't have these structural problems. Anyone that said it was a coup, no, it's not a coup. You know, we, we came back and we get to business as usual, such as it is. The Europeans are pretty startled by all of this. And let's also keep in mind, you remember when, uh, when the Snowden revelations showed that the Angela Merkel cell phone was being hacked yeah. by the Americans? It's just a very different environment where the U.S. is seen as much more unilateralist. Biden says we're pulling out of Afghanistan. Well, the Europeans have as many troops but, there as the U.S. He didn't coordinate that. But, with the Europeans. Yeah, we announced that we're going to uh, not pay attention to patents anymore um, for uh, for coronavirus. The Germans and the EU strongly opposed that. Wasn't coordinated in advance by the United States. So even though they like this guy, and even though they trust us more than the Chinese, we're actually farther apart than we have been. Well, and that, but that's Ian, but Ian, that's exactly where I wanted to go. And, and I don't mean to cut you off, but there's this question about how, yes, the U.S. perhaps isn't as far apart from Germany as they are with China. However, what kind of consensus, what kind of alliance can they forge if there isn't that trust? And frankly, if uh, Germany looks at the U.S. and says, you're not leading by example. Uh, we can forge a lot of coordinated policies when it's intentional, and when it's specific. So if we sit down and say that we want to work together um, on dealing with digital services tax, dealing with an alternative minimum tax, we don't have to hit each other with you know, an escalating tariff environment. We can create predictability for the markets. On Belarus, an issue that is you know, not front of line for the average American in Washington, but nonetheless, Biden made it clear that he wanted to coordinate with the Europeans and we did that. We did that effectively. But that's very different from saying that on the issues that are the top priority for the United States, that the Europeans will see them in the same way. And one thing we haven't mentioned so far, which matters a lot more than what we've seen in the U.S., is Brexit. 
The UK is by far the most aligned and closest former European country with the United States. They're no longer in the EU. Their UK relationship with the EU is very strained. This makes it a lot harder for the Americans to actually get the Europeans on the same page because the UK used to help us with right. that inside the EU. Well, we don't anymore. So, Ian, can you give us a sense of what kind of guideposts you're looking for to determine whether this global tour that President Biden is embarking on today is successful? Uh, I want to see how much Emmanuel Macron talks about strategic autonomy in front of the Americans. The French have a very different view of the future of Europe uh, in terms of national security, in terms of migrants, um, in terms of the Middle East, North Africa, you name it. I want to see to what the Mediterranean, I want to see to what extent he is trying to make a name for himself. Let's keep in mind, Merkel did very well in these elections in East Germany. Macron is going to be there after Merkel right. is gone. And he sees himself as the future leader of Europe. So I want to watch that. I want to see the mood music between the Germans and the Americans at the high level, see how much yeah. it looks coordinated in advance. And I want to see if there's any yeah. substance uh, Ian, to the, refer to the, uh, to, Ian, to the comments that come out. Nobody cares. When's your next book out? Uh, early next year. Early next year. Give us a theme. Give us a tease here. It's called uh, the crisis we need. And, and given that coronavirus, I mean, the lessons we've learned from coronavirus globally do not exist. So to what extent can we uh, take from that uh, any solace that with climate, uh, with the technology revolution, with cyber, right. uh, are, are we going to be able to use those to change our governance? Winston right. Churchill looking at the world after coronavirus would be very disappointed. We did not take advantage of this crisis. What about the drought? Very quickly here, Dr. Bremer, the drought in the United States, I think, is underplayed right now. Do you agree? I think that Americans are paying a lot more attention to climate. Young people, whether they're from the left or the right, right. than they were five years ago. The fact that it's hitting a lot of Americans at um, home really matters. Dr. Bremer, thank you so much. Really look forward again in about six months now where we'll begin planning his top risks of 2000. Right now, Luigi Singalis with us from Italy and from the Booth School of Chicago. And I really can't say enough about his podcast, Capitalism, and also, of course, A Capitalism for the People, his wonderful book, a really different view on the American economic and political experiment. Professor Singalis, thank you so much for joining us this morning. How will President Biden be greeted in Europe? I think that... Uh, uh Matt was right. Uh, he's greeted very nicely just because he's not Trump. I think that uh, Trump did create uh, a long-term uh, friction, and some of that can be fixed by just not being Trump. But I think that uh, there is a, a longer-term concern of whether the U.S. policy and the European policy are uh, aligned in the future. And I think that uh, the giant uh, uh, in the room is, of course, China, and the policy that uh, Germany has mind and indirectly Europe was in mind for China is very different view from the policy that the Biden administration has in mind. So I think that uh, there is a, a risk for conflict there. Luigi, what do you expect to actually come from these meetings with European allies with respect to China policy? What are you hoping could get accomplished that will actually tell you something concrete? Um, 
honestly, I don't hope, uh, I, don't, I don't expect anything to, to take place. I think that uh, uh, Germany uh, wants to maintain very strong uh, trade relationship with China and is not going to do anything to jeopardize those. And uh, so, uh, and I think the United States like a stronger voice uh, uh, on human rights and also on, uh, on trade policy in general. So I don't see uh, much of a space for agreement there. Has Germany become somewhat of a problem here, Luigi? I mean, um, Berlin wants stronger ties with Beijing, and Berlin also wants to send money to Moscow via the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. It seems like the Germans are not willing to let go of a lot of U.S. adversaries. In part is that uh, the, the, the Trump presidency represented a fracture that is difficult to undo. Uh, Germany realized that uh, cannot rely longer term on, uh, on the, the relation the same way that uh, used to. And so I think he started to craft a European policy. Uh, the problem is that uh, there is not really a European state, uh, let alone a European army. So I think it's going to be a bit uh, of, a, of a challenge there. Because uh, if Europe were to spoke with a common uh, language and a common message, I think would be one thing. Uh, unfortunately, in foreign policy, we still are, are pretty fractured. Luigi, on your take on American capitalism, where is our capitalism now with the dominance of these technology companies? President Biden's dealing with it. Our radio, our TV listeners and viewers, each of us is dealing with this technological revolution, whether it's Amazon, Google, or things we don't even understand. How will our capitalism survive that? So I think it's a mixed view on the one end. Uh, technology has brought us an enormous amount of benefits. Uh, I think it would be hard to imagine uh, the life under the pandemic without the technology that uh, was provided from uh, the Zoom we're using to the Amazon to deliver our food to our doorsteps and so on and so forth. So there is no doubt that uh, there have been enormous improvement, enormous benefits. Uh, the concern I have is that uh, uh, the market is becoming more concentrated and uh, less uh, uh, contestable. Um, and uh, uh, more importantly, that these companies uh, can pretty quickly have also uh, some power in determining what we see, uh, what we read, uh, what we do. And, uh, and when uh, you start to have such uh, large market power, the concern is that you might use it not only for economic reasons, but also for political reasons. So I think that uh, there is a concern that is not just about uh, uh, the economic uh, uh, effects of uh, concentration, but also the political effects. There's a quick question, uh, Luigi, about the dynamism of the economy with concentration at the top and then highly indebted companies uh, that have more legacy businesses making up the remaining economy. Do you think that the economy that you're describing here with the concentration of big tech is less dynamic and poised for slower growth? I think there is the risk that is less dynamic, and I think that that's where, in my view, one of the direction of the antitrust should be. Um, in my view, I know this is a disputed view, but in my view, the trial against Microsoft in the late 90s was very useful to provide a space for the current technological revolution. I think that uh, if Google mm -hmm. exists today, in part, is because uh, uh, the DOJ sued uh, Microsoft. So it's only fair that uh, the DOJ would sue Google to let the ne next Google come about. 
Luigi, you got to leave it there. Luigi Zingales, thank you so much. Uh, really look forward to you coaching Tottenham here uh, in the coming weeks. He is from uh, the University of Chicago <laughs> Booth School. And, of course, I can't say enough. It was Book of the Summer a number of years ago on capitalism. Stuart Kaiser joined us. Let's get right to it with UBS Head of Equity Derivative Strategy. Stuart, in your world of equities, is your world linked to the 10-year yield and the shock we see with low yields? Hey, good morning, Tom. It definitely is. And I think really what you've seen recently is probably pretty positive for equities in the sense that inflation break-evens and inflation expectations did started to get to the level at which we thought it was going to become disruptive for equity markets. Uh, but now with like, you know, with the 10-year break-even back below 240, with 10-year yields pulling back a little bit, I think that sort of has relieved the pressure a bit. You know, we had a very fast and high volatility rise in rates and inflation expectations. The fact that those have come off a bit, I think, has kind of reduced a little pressure on markets. Uh, but but there's definitely a link between the two, no doubt. So what? Where is the source of potential volatility here? Uh, for markets, I mean, I think I think Fed policy is going to be probably the number one source of potential volatility over the next couple of weeks. Obviously, we get a big inflation print on Thursday. Uh, you know, UBS is is well above consensus for both core and headline, so I think that'll test the recent moves in markets. You know, you you got ten-year break-evens up to two sixty-ish um, the last time we had a strong inflation print. So I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And then secondly, you know, the following week, how does that impact Fed thinking? You know, do the dots move? Um, does the Fed start to speak a little more positive? positively about the growth outlook, which the market might read as hawkish. So I think over the course of the next month, those are going to be the two big ones. And then two Q earnings uh, upon us at that point. Uh, but Stuart, why am I not to believe that what the market's pricing in right now is effectively uh, what the market foresees here? If we do get uh, a higher than projected read on that inflation, what would change the dynamics here that would take us anywhere away from 1.5, where we are right now on the 10-year yield? Well, it's a great question. I think what most people are saying on the market side is, number one, a lot of the inflation is coming from things like used car prices, uh, which they expect to kind of be, quote unquote, transitory. If, <laughs> it hurts me to say that term, but but that's the one that's out there. Tom's um, so drinking. I too. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, look, I think, you know, what would get it to move would be, do you see things like wage inflation, like rents, um, like goods prices inflation that might be a little more sustainable? So I think it's going to be below the surface in the inflation print. What are the drivers? And does that start to dislodge things? If you were to say, you know, what could be most disruptive for markets, I think it's going to be longer term inflation expectations. You know, the fit excuse me, the Fed looks at survey-based inflation. So if things like University of Michigan long-term inflation start to move, if the inflation term structure, you know, you know, stops being inverted from, you know, five-year to 30-year, that could be an issue as well. So look, it's it's a high inflation print. And then it's the components of that print um, that look less transitory than, than maybe the Fed and the markets are currently expecting. Stuart, are we overplaying the inflation story, which we're not going to have an answer to until the end of the year, and perhaps underplaying some of these other factors, like, for example, earnings disappointments, especially given how high expectations are? It's, it's a great question. I mean, I, I, it's, it's, it's hard for a portfolio manager or a risk manager to ignore the cadence of the inflation data, right? So it could be that six months from now, we look back and, and we think that that was a tempest in a teapot. But you know, an investor can't ignore that stuff as it's happening. So I think people are responding rationally to the data that that they're seeing. Um, in terms of earnings, you know, expectations, I think, are high at the single stock level. But if you look collectively, you know, S&P 500 EPS for next quarter, I think still shows a sequential decline versus last quarter. It does. Yeah. So we do think there's, you know, the potential as we get into actually 
post FOMC, I think as people start to look at it, look at earnings and, and sharpen their pencils, I think earnings could yeah. you know, turn out to be a positive catalyst over over the course of the rest of the month. We've heard that now. This is the second time. That's an important insight. Sharpen the pencils as we go to earnings. And, of course, we'll do that uh, here on Surveillance. Stuart Kaiser, we look forward to you sharpening uh, your pencil in a couple weeks with us as well. UBS head of equity derivatives research. Joining us now is someone who has the courage to take a longer perspective. Claudia Sam is one of the most interesting practicing economists in the nation with Jane Family Institute, formerly with the Federal Reserve, and always controversial. We're thrilled that Ms. Sam could join us this morning. <laughs> Claudia, I love your morning uh, report where you say, look, would everybody grow up? And stop looking at weekly claims. Stop looking monthly, monthly, thinking monthly. You want us to have the courage to look out a decade. What do you mean by that? Well, I follow every shred of data just like anyone else who's doing <clears throat> macroeconomics right now. But I am so frustrated with the fact that we can't even set the latest numbers in the context of the pandemic, let alone the decades of trend that we have seen. Inflation is just one example, has trended down decade after decade. Trends do not reverse in a month or two. Like this is absurd. And we also, and this is very disconcerting, have seen for decades fewer people working. I mean, the employment to population ratio, if you smooth across the recessions, it's been going down. Claudia Sam with us again as Air Force One uh, begins a flight 3 p.m. this afternoon. Uh, President and the First Lady will be at Royal Air Force Mildenhall in the United Kingdom and then on to Cornwall in the uh, G7 uh, meetings. I, very impressive. They're going to go to Tregenna Castle. I think that was in Poldark as, as well. Claudia, G7 meeting speaks to the international economy. Where does the U.S. fit in right now after the Trump years? The, the, the president clearly wants to reassert a Biden tone internationally. How would you suggest his best practice would be? Well, it's time to lead. And, and it's time to work with these other countries. It's just like this moment in the pandemic. We are not going to be on track until the least privileged among us in the world community are on track. And the United States has a responsibility, a moral responsibility to help people get out of the pandemic and the vaccines. But there's a leadership in the global economy that frankly starts at home and investing in the United States and its people. Like that's an example we need to set for the rest of the world. Let's tie the idea of the global stage with the domestic one, the idea here of inflation being an international story. And one reason why people say for decades inflation's been coming down is because of the disinflation that was imported from China, the idea that there could be some cheap labor uh, and, and, and cheap goods that the U.S. was importing. We are seeing a shift in that. How much does that change the underlying premise that inflation will not pick up if China is a wealthier nation that's seeing inflation itself uh, pick up. Right. Well, I think it's important, especially as we watch the month to month numbers, to know that we have different cross currents, right? Deflationary pressures, particularly now that we are still in a pandemic around the world, they are with us. Now, obviously, there are supply chain issues that have come from the pandemic that are pushing against it. So it's kind of a race between the two. But I'm betting on the longer run trends, and it may change. Like China, it may shift around the world. But it's going to do so slowly. We're not turning on a dime here. 
Yeah, well, there is a question, especially as we emerge from the pandemic and President Biden, uh, among his comments, saying that the world vaccination strategy uh, that he has, he's going to detail in his trip to Europe. He is making comments as he heads overseas for the G7 meeting. Claudia, going forward, what is giving you conviction that you are right in all of these former Fed officials and others who are coming out and warning against being too sanguine about inflation are wrong? So I'm a good forecaster and I've trained with the best in the world. I mean, the Federal Reserve, they take inflation very seriously. They think about the data. Frankly, the, the staff did better forecasting than the Federal Open Market Committee for years, telling them you're not getting two unless you do something. So I think there's a thoughtfulness, a grounding in data, and an understanding that supply chain issues do tend to be temporary. We live in a very different world, a very different economy than in the 1970s. And while I think inflation is gonna run year over year around 3% the rest of this year, that's a good sign. That is a, a economy getting back on track, getting people back to work. And I just, I want people to write down their numbers so we can have a conversation. Yeah, do you think that there would be, if we got to say 3% or anything around there, uh, Claudia, do you think that there would be any conflict uh, with an inflation rate uh, at that level uh, and I guess the other side of the mandate here, which is of course uh, getting that full employment level, whatever that may be at this point? Right, well, they're both pointing in the same direction. Again, if we look back last year, inflation was running around 1%. The Fed says it wants on average two. I mean, the last time I checked, one and three average to two, right? So the Fed <clears throat> is on track, and we have millions yeah. of people who are not on the job. So their mandate's pushing in the same direction. Right. And I, I really struggle to see the conflict here. As part of that mandate, though, do you think that there's going to be a more focus on the quality of jobs rather than just that aggregate number? Well, there should be. That's what full employment is. I mean, if you go back decades and decades, it wasn't just about having a job. It was having a job at a livable wage. And uh, frankly, I'm surprised at some of the movement we've seen, not just in wages, but getting people, you know, more regular hours. I mean, there are so many things we can do in the labor market to make jobs better that are frankly no brainers. And we should have been there before the pandemic, and we weren't. Mm. Claudia Sam, thank you so much. We've got to keep it shorter today because of the president's yeah. trip, but greatly, greatly appreciate it. Claudia Sam, I can't say enough, folks, about following her on Twitter just to get her thoughts on the present economic data and the longer view as well with the Jane Family Institute. This is the equity conversation of the moment for me. Jonathan Golub with us with Credit Suisse. You were way out front months ago with respect for the big tech. They've been somnolent here over the last X number of months. What do you do with big tech right now? You know, Tom, I, I think the, the real story here is, is not a tech versus the rest of the market, but really about the power of the reopening and operating leverage. And you want to be in companies that benefit the most from the stimulus and the reopening. And those tend to be higher fixed cost businesses yep, and old yep. economy businesses. I think that tech ends up being a market performer. These, these tech names are superior long-term bets, five years, 10 years, they're what yep. you want to hold. But over the next three to six months between now and the end of the year, right. I think that they're, they're, they're kind of in the game, but they're not leading the pack. Okay, they're in the game, they're not leading the pack, but to me what's so important here 
is they've got revenue growth. When you get operating leverage increase, fixed cost advantage, does revenue growth matter? It, it does, but, but it really depends on the kind of business. What you really want is if, if you think about a factory where, where a huge amount of the, the overhead is in that building and the machinery, when you cr increase revenues, it, it drops right to the bottom line. You just don't have the same dynamic for a software company. You do for hardware. You do for technology equipment companies. You do for semis, but you don't for Internet companies or social media companies. So um, the, the pure play on this is to buy banks and commodities and, and industrial names and transportation companies, stuff that doesn't seem all that innovative but tends to – get a, a, a bigger unit of EPS growth from a single unit of, of revenue growth. Jonathan, how concerned should I be about margins here, you know, in supporting earnings going forward? I mean, I, and I really think about it from the wage inflation perspective here. I, I think, you know, as this economy reopens, is that a big risk that we have wage inflation to the point that it impacts uh, profitability? You know, we, we, we've done a bunch of, of research on this, and what we're finding is, is two things. First of all, right now, companies have an extraordinary amount of pricing power. Um, the ability to pass on higher costs is just shocking. I'll, I'll just give you one specific example. Um, people who make, you know, um, sugary beverages, yeah, you know, uh, soft drinks, uh, the cost of corn sweetener is up. The cost of the can is up. The cost of the oil is up to transport those cans full of sugary water to the store is up and yet their profit margins are rising mm. because they're able to pass on that cost and some and you're seeing that very very broadly the, there's a problem though is if you look further out into the future once you increase those wages you can't bring them back down you know the price of of every one of the things i mentioned maybe oil prices yeah. come back down maybe all but wages stick and so your point i think is the good one commodity inflation not concerning, wage inflation, yeah. more concerning. Do you think that John Golub does this research with a can of Mountain Dew in his hand? Absolutely. Maybe he's got to. And a Red I mean, Bull on the other one, and To be that to detailed, he's got his <laughs> seltzer and his Kiel potato vodka seltzer. I mean, he's just, he's all set up for beverage research. <laughs> Jonathan, let's talk valuation here. I mean, 22, 23 times forward earnings. I know earnings have come through really strong over the past several quarters, but should investors be asking some valuation questions? Um, for, first of all, you know we are at you know we're 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 absolutely at stretch valuations. I think um, if you if you assume and and I do that the earnings are underestimated. I mean, take a look at last quarter um, where you had something like a twenty plus percent beat. If we see something even directionally like that, what it means is the actual PE multiple is much much lower than the stated number because the earnings are underestimated. Um, so that's the most important thing. The second issue is if you compare now to history, there are two big differences. Interest rates or discount rate is much lower. And number two, the cash flow generation of the S&P is much higher. Some of that is tech. Some of that is just change in business practices. So I think that we're going to be carrying a higher multiple for the next decade. I think that multiple is just going to be higher. Mm -hmm. But in the near term, I think that the multiples are probably overstated because we're understating the E and the PE formula. What's your study on use of cash right now? What is your study on dividend growth, 
share buyback, which is obvious, but critically, is there truly a, an appetite for CapEx? Um, if, yeah, that's a brilliant question, and I'm not just saying that. Okay, I'm going home. See, the, buyback, <laughs> the buyback, here's what's happened, Tom, is the buybacks have gotten totally slashed, but the corporate free cash flow generation has gotten better. So here's what normally happens during a session. Companies' free cash flows just collapse, yeah. and they need to pull in, they need to cut their, nobody wants to cut a dividend, so they kill their buybacks, and then they reinstate them later. Now you've had this weird thing is that they've killed the buybacks in anticipation of of, a, of this thing being really ugly. And in fact, the cash flows have held up. So quickly, what happens then? So what happens? Buybacks are, buybacks are going to increase way, way, way more than we yeah. think over the next two or three years. Yeah. And it's going to support the market. I'll give a rare opine. I think Mr. Golub's on to something there. And that's maybe the great surprise of, yep. say, September as well. Jonathan Golub, always smart, always in the market, Credit Suisse, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.